Genre. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. This week we're discussing Bee Wolf from the graphic novel Bee Wolf by Zach Wienersmith and Boulay. And joining me for the discussion is first-time guest Zach Wienersmith. Welcome, Zach. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you on. Uh, this is a graphic novel that I first saw when a, uh, a fellow comic scholar like posted some of the images from it on on social media. And I was like, I think I need to go read that right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have been evangelizing this graphic novel <laughs> adaptation to to many people. Um, for anyone who's not familiar, Beowulf is a middle grade retelling of Beowulf presented with child protagonists and an evil adult called Mr. Grindle. And it was published in March 2023. The text was written by Zach Wienersmith, our guest, and the art was done by Boulay. Uh, so Zach, first of all, great graphic novel. I have truly enjoyed it. <laughs> I, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's like a perpetual surprise how well it's done. Cause I, I, I honestly thought like, I, I thought we'd made something really cool, but I was like, no one's going to buy this. Uh, <laughs> it turned out there was an audience for, uh, for a litter of unrhymed verse for children. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it has found an audience. And I think, uh, I mean, we'll give a couple examples, but there is something that just begs for this to be read out loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, I think like once someone discovers that and has to entertain a group of children, uh, this could be a very easy go-to text. Yes. Yeah. I think, that, I think that's key. I, I always, when people ask me what age it's for, it's like, it doesn't matter the age, as long as you sort of shouted at the child, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it'll be fine. Yeah. Well, I already said how I came to it by uh, seeing a social media post uh, from someone who knows comics very well. And with their recommendation, I immediately uh, pursued it. Uh, but Zach, how did you get the idea to make a <laughs> a middle grade adaptation of Beowulf? <laughs> so I kind of didn't. Um, so I'll say, first of all, and then I'll get into it. But like, I actually, the word adaptation, I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me that I was doing an adaptation until it was already done. For me, it was just kind of like, Having fun, like so. I feel like if, you, if I were going to do an adaptation in the usual sense, I would sort of sit down and kind of think like, I don't know, more carefully. I was I was really <laughs> enjoying myself. So what what happened was, um, I I I remember it was, I think it was like Christmas, like five or six years ago. I had this. I thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny to sort of do Beowulf for kids? And then it just you know, sometimes you have an idea, and then you're like, it's just clearly stupid. And then it just sort of turned out to be surprisingly rich, especially once I had the idea of like. That the the bad the, the bad guy um, the monster will turn them into adults, which is nice because it's like you 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 get to keep the conceit that he's kind of killing them. At least he's killing them as children. But then mm-hmm. also it's like funny, and you get to make fun of adults. But then I I um I kind of shelved it. And I ended up though I ended up telling it to my daughter who was like four at the time, and just doesn't pay attention to anything I said then or now. And even when I would like try to tell her stories or be engaging, and then I, just as a joke, I started telling her like this Beowulf for kids, and she was just totally engaged and and weirdly was like extra engaged when I started like rolling in these little poetic devices, which is just kind of fascinating. You know, it's like you're using these tricks that apparently worked 1100 years ago that aren't used so much anymore. And they were just working just fine. Um, and, and so I just kind of ended up developing and, and developing it. And I still figured it was unpublishable and through a like complex sequence of events, we ended up finding like the one person in all of comics who was able to do it properly. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I guess if you can entertain your child, you, you have something, right? 
<laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's the ultimate test. I read TH, not TH White, I'm sorry, E.B. White uh, said somewhere, you know, he'd written, um, oh, what's his really famous one? Uh, uh, Charlotte Webb? Charlotte Webb. Yeah, he'd written Charlotte Webb and it got all these critical reviews that were good. And he was like, okay, but that doesn't really count. You know, the, the kid's going to like it. And I, that, that was what, what gave me hope is that at least like, I, I've at least gotten a decent number of parents being like, you know, this is the... I, I, I had one parent, this was really gratifying, said his kids refused to go to bed. They like, they challenged him, you, you will not put me to bed until you finish this book, which, which is nice because it's also in the spirit of the book uh, where, where bedtime is refused. Yeah, the, the children are just outwardly rebelling against adults. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> they're, they're picking up on the themes right there. <laughs> well, exactly. This is a this is a lesson free book. Uh, this is actively uh, the kids are basically bad. Uh, like, well, or, or they're bad as like you know they, they have a sense of honor or something, but they are being they are they're definitely breaking the rules uh, constantly. All right. Well, I I put together some trivia about both the creators of this graphic novel and. Uh, and the original text of, of Beowulf. That's something we always do is a little bit of trivia. Zach, you are welcome to add anything that you feel like uh, I may be leaving out. So Belay, the artist for this graphic novel, is the pen name of Gilles Roussel, and I apologize for my French pronunciation. He is a French artist who first gained popularity with a blog in the early 2000s and has been prolific ever since. I was going through his like list of credits, and I'm like, this, this man has done an awful lot. He's amazing. He's, he's, he's kind of astonishing. Uh, the, you know, you know, he's interesting, too, because he's really kind of like an early webcomics guy. Uh, in, in France, it's called, uh, uh, pardon my French as well, it's, it's blog BD, you know, uh, blog bande dessinée, meaning, you know, comic blogs. And, uh, and he was like one of the early guys. And for me, you know, reading his old stuff is really nostalgic for me because it reminds me of like the, the old like pre-social media webcomic days uh, before everything got like horrible. <laughs> and, um, and uh, but also what's amazing about him, he's also like classically trained. So he can mm-hmm. do like, I mean, you can see it in the pages, like in addition to the comic skill, there's like a kind of classical composition on a lot of the pages. There's a lot of subtlety um, to it. Um, so I, I, don't, don't let me derail your trivia, but he's, 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 uh, he's I, I think of him as the best living cartoonist. I really do. Um, he's just like top of France, which makes him top of the world. Uh, oh yeah, the <laughs> French comic scene is an impressive one to be at the top of. <laughs> yes, insane. Uh, yeah, so good. Uh, well, what I was going to say, the style, like as you flip through the book, there is a huge range and flexibility mm-hmm. in the style. Sometimes it's very um, almost, you know, simplified cartoony, um, yeah. you know, with with just very clear, crisp lines. And other times it's like heavily shaded and cross crosshatched and... Um, there's, yeah. there's just a wide range in uh, the choices that he makes in order to tell the story. It, it's, it, it's, I, I, I would, the, the other thing too, like, like, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I think of him in this book, he's doing a kind of blend of, of what I think of as a sort of classic Franco Belgian style, mm-hmm. but with like obvious manga influences. Um, and then something else, I don't know what it is exactly, but it, <laughs> there's just these, these like sort of magical quality to it. Like as if this was a genre that already existed, but I think it's also, um, there's a lot of subtlety. Um, the, the, like, like just as a little example, you'll notice like there are parts where there are like actual monsters in the story, and they're not as creepy as the adults, which mm-hmm. is just like such a like lovely detail. Like that was not something I had in my notes for him, but he just like he, he like you know he's he's really like the director of this book, you know. And so <laughs> what's really interesting 
it was it would be very easy to kind of clumsily have made the monsters really scary and then not left enough emotional room but he doesn't like the monsters are almost cute and so when you actually get to the fight with the like uh, with, with mr grindle the adult he, he's like genuinely a little creepy like it's just perfectly writing line there's just this like emotional subtlety to it that i love yeah i, I completely agree and it's just really interesting when you like on the same page or like on pages that are right next to each other, it feels like a different art style, but somehow it is also all clearly of a piece. Uh, like yeah. it, all, it all works together and feels seamless. But if you were to stop and analyze and try and describe uh, the, the way that he's presenting these images, you'd have to use different adjectives. Uh, yeah. But it, Totally. But it doesn't feel disjointed as you're going. I think, I think part of it is it is in a kind of like fable-ish dream setting, you know, so the, I think that it's because it's the same with the language, you know, the language kind of like, like bobs between like joking and like dead serious and, 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 and even like in places it's kind of both. And, uh, and so I, I and I, like, I, I've several, like, I think the only reason you get away with that is that it is in this sort of kid world where they're, you know, things don't quite have to make sense. Like, like, so they, they can show up somewhere and they're just monsters and it's never made clear whether they're real or not. Um, and, and I feel like it would obviously sort of detract from it to, to, to clarify that. Uh, and so I think, I think what's, what's nice is, you know, so I, you, usually when you make a comic book, what you do is provide a sort of detailed script. And I, I literally just gave him a poem, like as if it like, was just like a stack of stanzas, mm-hmm. um, like I, I had like some tiny notes, but they were mostly things like, this is the person talking right now. Um, and so, like, it's really directed by him, uh, and so, so I think that's that's part of what makes it so kind of seamless is that he, you know, had, had more freedom. Uh, the, the, a lot of writers want to like really control what the artist is doing, but I feel like if you're working with someone like Boulet, it's like, why would you? Why would you ever want to, you know, <laughs> control this person? You really want to just set them free, like go do absolutely. Go. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent. I, I actually think you know, you know, I, I've I've been an illustrator too, so I know it's like to be on the other end of this, and, and you know. You know, they, you, you do want some direction. I did try to provide that. I probably didn't provide enough. But like, you know, it's also, you know, when you let someone have like free range, they come up with new stuff. So there were a couple of places I actually rewrote the text around something he had done. Like not not anything major, but like like mm-hmm. change change of a, a, a verb or adjective. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, it makes it sound like fully collaborative. Like you're you're both trusting each other, right? As you. Yeah, I mean, it's well, it's, it's, it's I mean, we're both like older cartoonists at this point. So it's like, you know, it helped. We're like, I think it helps to be people who are kind of like happy in our careers who are just doing this project because we're happy to do it. Um, (laughs) So there's there's a kind of like, I don't know, we both know what we're doing. And and, Mm -hmm. and, and there's a trust that's already there. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, there's no part of me that thinks uh, I can't, I can't trust him to do a better job than the thing I had imagined. Like, can I give you a really good example? I'm I'm derailing your trivia, but, but like, please, this is is fantastic. (laughs) So one of my, one of my favorite panels, it's early on, it's subtle, probably no one cares about it. There's this panel, it's right, right toward the end. I think it's of the first fit, the first chapter, um, the, the first king is this kid named Carl and he becomes a teenager. And so he sort of recognizes that he has to give it all up and he does. And there's this one shot of him where it just says something about like how, like he kind of went onto the horrible world of being a teen, you know, and he's like, he's getting, he's, he, oh, it's like, it's something like he was seen later sacking groceries, you know, and that's like the yeah. ultimate fall, you know, mm-hmm. and there's this shot of him. And it's like, it's like the shot, it's, it's like the shot you paint of a portrait of someone when they died, like they're leaning forward and there's a shadow over his face, but he's, he looks, and this is like, like he looks sort of dapper and, and kind of gentle. And I think if I had drawn it, I would have just made him kind of gross. 
I would have been like, oh, he's he's a teenager now, and it's gross, and and greasy and, hair, and, and yeah, yeah, <laughs> it would be it would be so tempting to just sort of mock, and we do, you know, we do tell jokes about teens, but you know, it's, it's just part of the setting. But like, he did it so gently, and and so it kind of like I don't know, it's it, it, it's it, it just gives it, it it's just a little thing, but it gives so much more emotional depth to this. It like it almost makes it sadder that he's gone, right? Like if he had just right. become this kind of monster person, it would be like, oh, that's horrible, you know. Uh, uh, but 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 since he kind of like became this sort of good teen, or at least it's kind of implied that he's just kind of like a bewildered teen uh, mm-hmm. who who means well, then it just makes that whole moment so much greater. It's just a little thing, but it just it, it adds so much world, you know. Well, the the line, the text that's above that image is "memories of his misbehaviors would remain for all time," which yeah, is this kind right. of uh, like positive part of yeah. of his identity. Uh, and, yeah, and and, so, and 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 to me, very very. Um, very old English poetry sentiment, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. All right. Well, Zach, you have said that you had your own experience cartooning and uh, you are, at least from what I could see and what I had kind of like had you on my radar for is Saturday morning breakfast cereal yeah. an online comic that um, it's been going for a very long time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, over 20 years. It's, it's, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to double check exactly how long and I was trying to find it right now in the background while I was talking. Cause I'm like, I, no, I no. feel like I, this has been part of like my, online wallpaper is that oh i get shared links occasionally you know to that yeah and it's to- totally I, I was trying to like go back to when that first happened and i couldn't place it <laughs> it, it was I, probably somewhere around 2002 but it was kind of off and on for a while so like in the very early days so i don't i don't mm-hmm. i don't and some some people are very obsessive about their sort of anniversaries and i don't even know what mine is <laughs> <laughs> um but as well as that you've been involved in publishing and uh video and podcasting mm-hmm. projects is there anything that in particular that you want to kind of mention for our listeners yes uh uh, yes, I have a new book coming out that's totally unrelated to Beowulf. If you like Beowulf, it has no bearing on whether you like this book. Uh, but I, um, I, my wife and I write popular science, and we wrote a book called A City on Mars, which is a kind of what I think of as the definitive treatment on space settlement that's like serious and is not saying it's going to happen easily and is, is in, in, in a couple areas sort of skeptical and also... Uh, and this is very different from Beowulf, but it has a detailed treatment of international law pertaining to space settlement, which is incredibly important and almost always skipped in these discussions. Uh, it really matters. And you know, like, you, you know, the, the joke I have about this is it's like if someone has a plan for a city and the first step in building the city is violate international law, it's probably not a good plan. <laughs> um, and uh, But anyway, so that, that's out November 7th. Uh, if, if you are a science fiction reader or writer, you might like it. Uh, but but otherwise, it's, it's, it's basically unrelated to uh, my kids' book stuff. <laughs> Is there an age range that you're targeting with that one? Um, I, th- the, the only thing that would give me pause age wise, other than it just, it, it is a book for adults. So like there's, you know, technical mm-hmm. stuff in it. Uh, and, um, but, but, but there is discussion, I mean, there's, so there's a discussion of reproduction, uh, which mm-hmm. is obviously something you'd want to solve if you were building a space settlement. So there, there, uh, uh, you know, we actually did a kind of like, we went through the, the history of people talking about sex in space. Uh, <laughs> so it, it is, I will say, it's like stuff my mom can read. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not like wanton. It's not gratuitous, right. but, but, but I, w- I would say like, you know, 12, 12 years or older, mm-hmm. if, if like, you know, you're cool with that sort of thing. Right. It, it, it's, it's nothing, it's nothing gross. It's just like, we're describing 
the deal. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, that sounds very interesting. Um, uh, one other project that I also want to know is that I, I discovered, and I did not know this when I was reading uh, Beowulf, that you and uh, Boulay had collaborated on Augie and the Green Knight. Yeah. Yeah, we wrote, uh, I mean, that was, gosh, that was um, 2013. Um, yeah, I, you know, so the, the idea with that book, and it's, it's funny, I was a younger writer then, and it's one of these books I can't read because I look back and I'm like, oh, I could have done, I wish I could have this premise back and just redo it. I mean, I don't think it's a bad book. I just think I would do it better now. Um, but the idea was to, you know, tell the story of the Green Knight, but slip a kid into it who kind of manipulates everything to work out. So, you know, these, it, Green Knight is like one of these interesting stories like Beowulf where it's like, it's interesting to think about what, what people thought the point was. Um, especially like, like with Beowulf, it's not too, like, I think there's a fairly straightforward read, which was, you know, Tolkien's and many others, which is that it's a kind of like, uh, elegiac meditation on mortality and heroism or something like that. But with, 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 with the Green Knight, it's weird, right? It's almost like a comedy at times. You know what I mean? Like, like, mm-hmm. like this, you know, this guy shows up and he's like, let's, let's cut off each other's heads, you know? And you like, but so it's like, I, I thought it was a really fun idea to like, like have a kid witness this and be like, Oh my God. But then it's kind of okay. Cause he puts his head right back on. <laughs> and then, and then there's that whole kind of weird. So I, th- I think the, the, the reading I like of, 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 of green Knight is that it's a kind of like, it's about something like duty uh, because like you, you have like Gawain and he has to basically work very hard to go get his head cut off. Uh, but it, he has to do it because he's like honoring this thing he said he would do, uh, even though it's like ludicrous and like no one should reasonably expect him to do it. And like also he's getting his head cut off. He does it anyway. Um, uh, but then there are all these other like weird mystical elements. So the kind of game of it for me was to sort of make sense of it by adding a background character. Um, but but yeah, and it was it, it did really well. And we, we sort of at some point agreed we should work together again. But I was like, you know, like like Boulay is like, you know, this is like. Um, like having Superman or something, you don't just come to him with anything. And so I, I waited till I had something I thought was really good um, before, before circling back. All right. And now just a little bit of trivia about Beowulf. This is written in, uh, well, well, it's, it's sometimes considered like the, the first, uh, I, I guess like I, I have a, a colleague who is a, a British lit uh, professor and they teach Beowulf as like one of the very first texts that we have mm-hmm. in English literature or British literature. But Yes and no, <laughs> because Beowulf, uh, the version that we have is written in Old English. This is not Shakespearean English. That is early modern English. Uh, so like there's there's centuries of Middle English between Shakespearean English, you know, like there's, there's centuries between Shakespeare's English and our English, uh, centuries between Shakespeare's English and and Old English. Old English is really a distinct language that... <laughs> Yes, it yes. does not have as many cognates for modern English as you might expect when it's something called Old English. You might think, okay, well, this is just antecedents where I'll be able to work it out. No, uh, <laughs> yeah. you definitely would not be able to work it out. It is a distinct language. And it was primarily spoken from 5th to 11th century. And Beowulf is a foundational text for modern literature. And it was an epic poem that we don't know where it came from exactly. Uh, there's there's all sorts of debate about was this uh, you know something that was amended across centuries of people passing down a story is there actually one person who kind of created this and it was passed down orally for a little while but it was pretty much as uh, conceived by a singular voice um, but eventually a version gets written down sometime between 975 and 1025 which 
because it's so far, uh, you know, so long ago, I think that feels like, oh, they kind of nailed it down. But then you think like 50 years is a really long time. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> like, that's a really long stretch of time that this might have been written down. Uh, and there's just so much kind of mystery around it. But we have that version that got written down. And there have been many translations of, yes. uh, you know, from Old English into well, other languages and into into English. Um, but the general story is that there's a hero named Beowulf coming to the aid of King Hrothgar uh, of the Danes. And there's a monster named Grendel that has been attacking his mead hall. I always love that it's the king's mead hall. <laughs> <It's under attack>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're literally being too loud. I mean, they're, yeah. They're, yeah, they're, they're, the parties they're are out of control. <laughs> That's right. Well, no, I think it specifically also says they're singing Christian songs. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you really, you know, no good. No, he doesn't like that kind. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Beowulf is going to come help out Hrothgar and defeat Grendel. And then Grendel's mother uh, is going to be looming as a threat, uh, angry that her son has been killed. Um, so those, that's like the, the general basic beat. But um, like if you go look up the Old English, which it's very easy to find it. And then you start to read it and it immediately sounds like you, you've got to go into like a, a Tolkien Elvish voice. <laughs> As you, yeah, as you try you and do. make these sounds. It's like, I, this is not my normal squeaking voice, but it's something like, Wait, we got Dana in Gayar Dagam, Peada Saninga, Prim Gefrunan. And it's like, that's not English. How is this called Old English? <laughs> Once yeah. you start to say it. And um, another thing that doesn't fully translate as you're like reading that is that this is, um, you know, a, a, a really complex poem. Uh, with very intricate uh, t- styles of poetry and styles of poetry that don't necessarily land quite as smoothly, I think, in modern English uh, mm-hmm. as it did um, in the old English. And so your story uh, takes those basic beats of, uh, you know, uh, a, a king throwing parties, uh, a, a, a monster uh, that is, uh, well, in your version, it's moving, uh, adultifying children, not killing children. It's just moving yeah. children into adulthood. Uh, and uh, then a hero that comes to help vanquish the monster. And, and I mean, that's such, there's something that's so simple in that idea that, okay, yeah. there's someone who has a big problem and someone comes and helps. And it's kind of like, I can think of so many stories that follow that beat. And it's, you know, part of that is also, of course, this is one of our foundational stories. So, right. so many stories are going to follow um, a lot of those rhythms. But the fact that there's something that's so easily to, easily understood in the basic beats of that story, I think actually makes it very inviting as this kind of story that's targeting middle grade uh, readers that, you, mm-hmm. that you've done. Um, yeah, totally. I was going to say, part of the appeal, and part of, why, by the way, like part of why I worry if we end up doing the second half, it's going to be much harder to do. <laughs> is <laughs> because it, it does get a little weirder but like but yeah i mean it's such a like i mean the story is basically we had a good thing going and somebody ruined it like that's <laughs> that's such a like kid thing you know what i mean uh it's just, it's, it's not at all uh not at all hard to wrap your head around for a kid all right well we're gonna do a summary of this graphic novel version in just a second but before we do listeners we want to thank you for downloading this episode and we also want to uh, especially thank any of you who support us on patreon if you would like to support us financially we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month all supporters on patreon at any level receive access to our quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we're not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast and all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss so so on to the um, spoiler summary. And I was talking with someone about this and mentioned that I was doing this uh, podcast. And they said, 
something along the lines of like, it's going to be really hard not to just read the whole thing out loud. <laughs> because once you start, there's, there's such a, a great rhythm to it the rolls, poetry. Yeah, yeah. It rolls, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to read a little bit of the opening and then we'll jump to the like story. Uh, hey, wait, listen to the lives of the long ago kids, the world fighters, the parent unminding kids, the improper, the politeness proof, the unbowed bully crushers, the bedtime breakers, the raspberry blowers, fighters of fun killers, fearing nothing, faded for fame. Uh, you get so much of what's in the old English of like the alliterative sounds and some of the uh, the hyphenated adjectives that are, mm-hmm. are used in a lot of the translations are present there. <laughs> but it's also completely accessible in a way that yep. even translations of Beowulf aren't always feel, you know, feeling super accessible. Yeah, actually, that that particular stanza, I think I took way more time on that one than any of the other ones, um, because it has to. Um, I think I think I must have rewritten it a dozen times because it's just like it has to do a lot of work because, um, like, this is an unfamiliar poem style. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, it, if, it, if it's mm-hmm. Doctor Seuss, like, like I would say most times today when people are doing kid poetry, quote unquote, it's like Doctor Seuss. Yeah, Doctor Seuss or Shel Silverstein, right? That's. <laughs> I wish there were more Silverstein, but yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, and so, uh, which, which, you're breaking it down. If you're doing Dr. Seuss, you're just doing, you're doing tetrameter and it's kind of bouncy. And, uh, uh, and um, this is obviously not that. Uh, and so it has to give you the sound, but also like needs to kind of establish place and kind of mood. Um, and so it was a big, uh, pain in the, I, I don't know if I can swear on your show. Um, but, um, we, we would just blip it if you do. <laughs> yeah, it was just, yeah, but it was, it was, it was very difficult. Um, but I, I ended up happy with it. Um, and, uh, and it, it's, it's tough too. Cause it, you know, one thing that was really tough about doing that is, is, you know, the original, and of course we don't really know this, but you could, I think, assume that people listening to it being told, assuming it's an oral poem, would have had some sort of grounding in this kind of setting, like, you know, guys in a meat hall. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas like, this is a made up story in a sort of insane setting. And so it, it has to kind of bring you into that universe in a way that's like, you know, it, it's inevitably going to be abrupt, but it has to somehow kind of like be gentle. And, and so, uh, you know, that, that's why I kind of linger on the opening. I think my opening is actually about as long as the original, uh, uh, just, just kind of to, to, to bring people into the universe. Well, I think you were incredibly successful because I've shown that those opening pages to several people and more than one are like, well, I got to go buy this. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. Good. So, so, so the work paid off, I guess. I would say. <laughs> and that first, even just that first image uh, where Boulay does like the full black background and yeah. it's, it's this hooded child holding a hand up and it just says, hey, wait, in white text above uh, the child's, uh, you know, raised hand as they're like trying to get your attention, which is, you know, like the, the opening of of the old English is just kind of wait and listen. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also it sounds, this is the other thing. So the opening is what, which, which the closest mm-hmm. thing I could think of was, Hey, wait, uh, that, that conveyed the same sense and had roughly the same, you know, sound. Um, although my understanding is now nobody thinks it's, it, it means, Hey, wait, or, or like, listen, it means something more like I'm going to talk now. Like it's a little more gentle, right, but I yeah. guess that's the, yeah, but <laughs> more of, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Calling for attention, I guess. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, after we get that opening, uh, readers are shown some of the famous children of legend, including Carl, the crown destined who builds a children's kingdom before he becomes a teenager. His cardboard crown is passed down through generations of leadership until it reaches Roger. Roger builds a treehouse where children party. But it is near the property of Mr. Grindle, an adult who hates the noise of children. Mr. Grindle has a touch that turns children into boring adults, and he uses this to destroy Roger's treehouse denizens. 
uh, I love that. It's like, well, I can't kill kids. <laughs> you know, it's, it's absolutely, you know, it's funny. I actually, so I, I love, I have great editors, uh, but the one thing I didn't do, I, I was worried at some point they were going to make us bring the kids back. So like the, ki- the spoilers, the kids get turned into adults and the, the sort of joke of it is they're the kind of like worst sort of adults. And like, not in the sense of like being evil, like they're just like, they care about their bank meeting, you know, they're like just, nothing is good in their lives anymore. And, um, and I thought the editor or editor close to Brill was going to be like, you have to bring them back. You can't just take away their childhoods. Uh, And she didn't, but I didn't mention it. I didn't even want to bring it up because it's, to me, it's so much more interesting if they're just actually lost. Um, And, uh, and yeah, what's nice, like I said, is, you know, if, if you think of Beowulf as a kind of like story about mortality, you know, having them actually lose this sort of best part of their lives is, is like actually kind of conveys mortalityness. Uh, so I, that was what made it really fun is there's this kind of like actual gloom to the story um, underlying everything. Like it's it, like that makes it genuinely sort of scary, even while it's telling jokes, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, it's not death the way it is in Beowulf, but it's the right. death of childhood, uh, and you don't come back from that, right? <laughs> it's, it's right, you death. don't. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, I, I there's this great line from Orwell that I put in the epigraph that he wrote. He was he was talking about the experience of being a child and how like you know, kids look at adults like sort of grotesques with nothing to live for. And I can't remember the exact words, but it was something like that. And it was like, Oh my God, this is exactly it. Like it's, it's, there's something so like vaguely like obscene about having become an adult. Like mm-hmm. it's all, everything's become pointless. And then I, I remember, I was it's funny. I was telling my brother about this once, how he's like, you look at toys from when you were a kid and you're like, why won't they dance anymore? Why won't they do stuff? <laughs> I used to be able to just, they would do things and now they're just things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah. So it's a, yeah that loss of the magic it's, right it's awful yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh roger the king was not touched by grindel and he promises to rebuild the population of his child wonderland but i'm gonna quote here the tie manacled monster mounted the ladder mad eyed malice mod wrath unmoored a middle-aged man beast and he ages the new children that roger had brought into the treehouse Nearby, in Heidi's neighborhood, there's a mighty child warrior named B. Wolf, and that's B-E-A Wolf. Uh, she gathers her pack to go to the aid of Roger. For uh, Before the days of B. Wolf, Roger knew Heidi, and Roger's – this is like the embedded storytelling that you get in some of these yeah. old <laughs> you know, and, and some of these older decks, where now we're going to stop the story of uh, that we've been doing, and Roger's going to tell us about – uh, Heidi, where Heidi accidentally set a pig farmer's pigs free, and to maintain peace with the farmer, she must get them back in their pen, but nobody knows how to do this until a young Roger suggests that all the kids sneak vegetables from their dinner plates and then put them into the pens to lure the pigs back, which does work. And Heidi, as uh, you know, thanks for Roger helping her out, vows to send her best kids to Roger's aid if he ever needs it, and Roger needs it now. So B Wolf is here to fulfill Heidi's oath. But Another one of these <laughs> tangents that we get. Uh, one kid says he's heard of Beowulf that she actually lost a battle against teenagers. and She's not really a great warrior. And then she's going to tell the true version of what happened, or at least her version uh, of what happened and how it looked like she lost. But in truth, she uh, fell to the teenagers and sea monsters <laughs> um, to, <laughs> to uh, prove her mettle as a warrior. 
Uh, later that night, Mr. Grindle comes and Bee Wolf battles him. There's a terrific struggle and Bee rips off Grindle's necktie, which returns him to the age of a child. Uh, and the children are all happy and celebrate, but Grendel's mother is angry to see her son has become a child again. She plots her revenge, but that's a tale for another time. The end. I love the necktie on Mr. Grindle. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you can't you can't rip off his arm. Uh, that would be that wouldn't work. That, that would be horrific. You would never make an animated movie that has that uh, as a prominent feature. Everyone would know that was maybe not the best idea. Yeah, that'd be yeah. Well, I, I, I'm curious as you um, you said like there is a little bit of a struggle with. Beowulf to kind of say like is there a theme is there is there anything of substance to this uh as you're transitioning this to what is going to be you know marketed as a children's story Mm -hmm. uh did you feel any pressure to kind of insert a moral of the story or did you just want to kind of embrace that ambiguity I, I I certainly didn't want to put a moral of the story I I I you know we we talked a minute ago about like French um, comics. One thing I love about French kids' comics, and, and in fairness, I'm sure it's the, the stuff I've gotten is a biased sample of the very best stuff, so maybe I'm, I'm being unfair to American comics, but American comics tend to want to tell you to brush your teeth and stand <laughs> for good and stand by your friends, and by the way, clean up the environment and don't be sexist, and I, like I believe in all of this stuff, and I propagandize my kids too, but my god, it's like endless, you know, whereas like French books for kids, they're like they're more like literature. They're just like stories about people. And I like that. I think that's, that's much better. The way I, the, the, the one liner would be that kids, you know, kids like art too. You know, you wouldn't like star Wars better because in the middle, it like started moralizing to you about, uh, you know, how you need to brush your teeth and be a good citizen. (laughs) And, um, so I think of like, um, there's a great French series called, um, uh, it's, it's, actually, it's part of it's out in English translations for first second. It's called Sardine from Outer Space. I think in French it's Sardine de l'Espace. Um, and what I love about it, they're just these little like 12 page stories about this girl and she's basically just bad and she has adventures in space and she always wins. And if like, you know, and there are bad guys who I guess are badder than her. And you know that cause like he's got a mustache. Um, but like, there is no point in the story where you're ever told how you're supposed to behave. And they're just so much more fun. Um, whereas Americans are always writing like morality epics. That's like what we do mm-hmm. all day long, even when we're not trying to, it's just like, like, like uh, it's what we do to our children. And, um, so I wasn't doing that. What happened is there was a kind of process where my very original idea for this story, which I think would have been a very, very bad book was to write a kind of mock epic, uh, meaning like to, to, to be ever so English majory about it, like, like proper epic to my mind is a story about a culture hero who through struggle embodies the best values in a culture, right? Yep. Or, or, or their, their self-conception of what is best. Whereas mock epic is, is doing the opposite. It's, it's using the epic format to mock those values. And so that was kind of what I was originally doing. It was just kind of, kind of going to be in like a highfalutin goofy language and the kids were kind of ridiculous. And then I think, I think, the, the sort of like ghost of, of, of the original story kind of wormed its way in. It was just like, it's sort of like when you, I, I mean, I had a professor once who said, you know, you, there's this thing that happens when people adapt Shakespeare, which is like, even when they do a bad job, usually like the, like the good part sort of shines through a little bit. It's hard to like completely crush it. And I think I was like trying to completely crush this story into something ridiculous. Uh, or, or, you know, I mean, there are lots of jokes and things, but like, you know, the, but, but I think, you know, 
the the least confusing way to read Beowulf to my mind is as a kind of story about mortality. Um, there, there are still parts that that makes hard to explain. As you say, there's a lot of stories within the story. Some of them make sense and some of them just don't make any damn sense at all. Like it's just not clear why they're there. there there's, they're, they're like, as you know, books and papers written on trying to untangle this. I think they're all pretty unsatisfactory, at least the ones I've come across. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you kind of, you know, uh, not, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but like, okay, so like, you know, the, the, there's sort of two classic ways to look at, it, which is like, we can look at it as three monster fights, but that's not actually not very adequate because like, there are these huge digressions, like the first two monster fights are in like the first third, and then a bunch of like chatter happens. <laughs> and then the last monster fight is like in the last 20%. And so you're like, well, if it's just three monster fights, what was going on in the middle there? And um, so you, the alternate way is to look at it as like two halves, which is like, there's, there's when Beowulf is young, and virile and everything is is going great and he's having glory and then there's when he's old and his troops betray him and uh which which is a version i like better but it still doesn't quite work like the 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 change is like abrupt it's in the middle of a chapter it's like a line like it's like oh and then he got old um and and so there's there's like i i feel like there's basically just not a straightforward way to read it and maybe that's just because we have a crappy version right. of it it's entirely possible we're missing some chunks or right exactly uh, or, yeah. or 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 there are chunks that shouldn't be there <laughs> yeah, something got added <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you know so, so tolkien actually wrote uh a, a attempt to kind of reconstruct pieces of it called selic spell which i think in old english means something like wondrous tale um which is sort of like on the one hand more satisfying but on the other hand kind of weirdly the the mystery aspects sort of add to beowulf um but so um um, gosh, I'm I've, I'm digressing so hard. I'm, I'm, I can't remember why we I originally. Oh, got we, we were talking about uh, <laughs> like try. There's an impulse in American storytelling to sometimes, especially in oh, stories for yes. kids, to to include some sort of moral. Yeah. So the the only thing I wanted to include the thing that to me there's this great line, and I think I'm going to steal it in some form for the second half if we do the second half. Tolkien quotes it from there's a medievalist named Kerr. And I'll get this slightly wrong, but he refers to what what they would have called the sort of northern sensibility, which which is like, whether such a thing even exists. Set that aside. But the 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 line was something like absolute resistance made perfect, or perfect because without hope is the sort of feeling of old English poetry. And like you know, I mean, you know, in, in modern times, no one wants to accept any such simple explanation. But that is to me how it feels to read a lot of these stories. Um, there, there's this kind of like doom is going to win in the end mm-hmm. but you can still do stuff in the meantime right which is which is like kind of an inversion of a way we often tell morals to kids right yeah. um uh you know that, that like well in the end it's going to be good uh you're mm-hmm. struggling now because in the end it's going to be good but in like like you know beowulf ends with everything awful uh and and somehow though the, the like heroism that existed in the meantime is what you're supposed to take away and so like i love that and I, so that's what i was i mean you can't quite convey that in the first the, the part I did, because in the first half of Beowulf, you know, Beowulf is just winning. So that, that's not as much in the story. Although you do get this idea, like, these kids are all going to become teenagers and it's going to be awful. And that's made clear, right? That, that's <laughs> they're, they're, the, the fate for every single one of these characters. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, the one thing you can say about Beowulf is there is an absolute obsession with fate. Um, with the idea of, like, fatedness. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it comes up over and over and over. And so I love that kind of motif, partially because it's just I love these old poems, but also just it's very alien to the way we tell kids' stories. I don't know if it's good for kids, uh, but, like, <laughs> as, as a, like, interesting thing to do as an artist, it was just kind of like, oh, how... 
like how cool is it to tell a story where the whole point is like in the end it was all not that it was all for nothing but the wheel is going to turn and all this is going to fall and so like what i love about that is then it's like all this stuff really matters because like it's it's only going to happen once and then everything's going to go away you know and so like for me that was like really rich so i don't i don't think that's a moral but it's a kind of like feel it's a kind right. of like yeah. like a mood yeah i was actually just reading uh, Mark Russell's Fantastic Four life story. Okay. Uh, and there's an issue in there that's told from Johnny Storm's point of view, uh, mm-hmm. who's the human torch. And I think the phrase that gets used to describe him is, uh, it's a happy cynic because it, it, like his attitude is the world's going to end. Like the, we're all going to die. So we're going to have all the fun we can while right. we're here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is, is essentially. <laughs> and, 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 and the other element, if you're, if you're going to be properly Anglo-Saxon is we're going to have all the fun we can and be remembered forever. Yes. Uh, because <laughs> yeah, we have, that is, yeah. that is how immortality is achieved in, <laughs> exactly. in, in the, in the old tales, right. Is, <laughs> is by having the, the tales told you're doing something that's worthy of being repeated. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was, it's funny. I was on a panel about this once at a conference, and I felt like I think I, I said the wrong thing because I was like, you know, there's a lot of kid stories about acceptance, and so especially now, there's a lot of like, you know, understanding your place and accepting who you are. Whereas like this, this, this story is about refusing to accept anything, right? Is <laughs> like there, there's a there's a bad thing coming, and I will not accept it, and that, and I will go down fighting it, and that's it. Uh, which, which just like to do that in a kid's book is like such a pleasure. Uh. <laughs> um, well, Zach, we, we've talked quite a bit about Boulay's art, but I also want to highlight just the the utter joy that there is in your prose uh, that's present in this. And like, it almost becomes irresistible, even if you're reading alone to, to avoid. Just to do it out loud. Yeah. Yes. Some of it out loud. And I, I wanted to ask a little bit about your process of how you find these uh like sometimes it's like the meaning is always clear but it's also it, it's about the sound of the words and how the mm-hmm. mouth forms around the words seem to be as important as conveying the literal meaning of these words yeah 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 totally i mean for for me i'm like i'm very much a like classical boring metered poetry guy i like the old methods and tricks and things and and like like you know right writing verse is, is a kind of bag of tricks like i i you know in in, in it's not like you just sit down and write poetry. There's like methods, you know, right? Yeah. Um, so um, I'm trying to think. There, there's a line. Um, there's a part where she beats the monsters. I think I can remember most of it. She says something like, um, on they came, clasping, clawing, catching nothing, each famished but unfed, flushed back by my furious force, hating me as I heave them down the cold, dark deeps. Never. Oh, this is this is my favorite joke in the whole thing. Never to rise more or less. They know the nap of the knuckle, which is like an extra joke because, like in Beowulf, it's the sleep of the sword, but uh, <laughs> not the nap of the knuckle. Uh, but so someone got that joke and, and was uh, and and golf chuckled. Um, but but um, but I mean, but, but dark deeps is the one that stands out because of like wine red seas. And- right. Oh, totally. Yeah. A hundred percent. And what I like about it too is it's like I, my my hope is that it sort of like. It, you're in kidland, but you're not taken out of seriousness. You know what I mean? Um, but but the part I really was happy with is is is, is the move to the word hating, which first of all, like kids aren't supposed to hate in books, and and like, <laughs> but it's a very again like this very old Saxon sensibility. Like I killed them, and they hated me while I killed them, and it was great. Uh, you know, you can't you you now you have to understand the monster's point of view. But like, um, uh, uh, but 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 the, the, the having to suddenly move to an H sound at the beginning of a line. Um, 
um, after saying force, right? So you have to go from force to hate. So you have to go from the front of your mouth to the back of your mouth. And so it kind of makes you inhale for that part. And so like, I don't like there's, I'm not capable of kind of like sitting down and doing that. But like what I would do is write stuff and then just say it out loud a lot to myself. And so I have like passages memorized just from trying to say them out loud over and over and over. Cause you can, you can, you could very quickly feel what's not working and not that it's all perfect. I have parts where like, I just couldn't get it to do what I wanted to. Like, is, is I actually think of this as a classic problem in writing epic that I hadn't thought about much, but you, you see it in like the Iliad or in, uh, you know, like, like Beowulf too, which is like, it's really easy to write epic when someone's telling a speech or beating somebody up. It's really hard to write epic when they're like going somewhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because you have to maintain tone, but they're just like on a boat. Um, and so, so those parts, and it's also, you know, in fairness, you maybe don't want to go as high. You want to, you know, reserve some of that, but like, um, but yeah, I would say the main thing is like, I'm not the kind of person like every now and then you would get on a roll and like, like parts of it would be written almost in final form on the first try. But generally speaking, it was like a huge amount of like reciting it and being like, well, that sucks. Um, do better, you know, and then, and then just kind of trying to, you know, one of the nice things about alliterative verse that I hadn't thought deeply about is, is it, you know, that one, one of the classic virtues of writing in any kind of verse form is it forces creativity because you're in a bind. So you have to make up new stuff because you can't just say it. Uh, you have to like meet, meet these other rules. Right. So it's like, I assume that's part of like, you know, why, why they so valued Kennings in these things. So like, for example, like I, I, at one point, one of the kennings I had, I don't know if this would technically count as a kenning, but I had to think about it. But like, so I refer to a river as a sliding sea, which is, I was very happy with that because it was like, like it's clearly in kid mode, but you can imagine an old English poet using that phrase. Um, as, yeah. uh, um, and, but also I needed the S sound. <laughs> I just needed it. Uh, but but so the, the being forced to need that S sound forces you to come up with something else. And the old English method I think of is to come up with something concrete, not to have something like, you know, that's, that's kind of glossy and damask, you know, it has to be like mm-hmm. something solid. And, and so that, that was a big part of getting that sound um, is, is, is cause you're, you, and the other thing I did, I had one other thing, which I would sort of collect words. So one of my rules and it's broken and it breaks my heart every time I break this rule. One of my rules was deeply prefer words that either are or really sound like they come out of old English. Um, so like a good solid consonant word, like thrust, or spine. I don't know if spine comes from old English. Probably doesn't. But like, but but like so like I it, like there are a couple of places where I had to use triumph and it just kills me. But there's not a word that has that. You know, it, it like you could almost convince yourself it was old English if you didn't know better. It's got like a mm-hmm. lot of consonanty sounds. But I, I deeply prefer words that sound like they're from a Germanic universe and not from a French or Latin universe. Um, so, which which I think helps render the sound a lot. So it's a lot more like banging uh, uh, that way. Yeah. And uh, like even the way that you you're saying something in a way that we don't say it, but the meaning is so yeah. clear. So like when you say they wended up ladder past the unwild walls, you know, as she's <laughs> going into uh, into the treehouse after it's been changed by Grendel uh, into yeah. an adult space. But they wended up ladder. <laughs> it's just. Yeah, yeah I know. It, it, <laughs> It's clear what's happening, but that's also not how we say it. No, it's not. And it was it was it was, it was hard too because it was also I think if I were writing for adults, like if, if I was like doing, I don't know that you could do this anymore because it would feel silly, silly. But if you tried to bring back like old English, you know, uh, alliteration and Breathgate type verse for uh, modern like adults, you you could be a lot more elusive, right? Mm-hmm. You could you could you could be like, no, sorry, you got to read this twice. Um, 
I didn't feel, I mean, I, I think I pushed this as far as I could for a kid's book, but like there were, there were places where it was like, no, 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 you can't, you have to, you know, they like, like I, I, I permitted myself some archaicisms, but only in context where it would be clear what was happening. And like, anyway, I had Gilles, uh, Boubou-Boulet's, uh, artwork to help out. So like, there's a part where I got to, like, there's a line that's something like their thold Roger, which is a kind of joke about Seamus Haney, uh, love this word thole, which is is an old English word. It, it still exists. I, th- I think it's some places in the scattered use of English, but it means something like to endure or suffer. Um, so you can see him tholing. You don't have to know what what it is to thole to know he's doing it. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so I mean, the pictures helped a lot I, uh, with, with that. I think I had a lot more liberty uh, because I had the pictures, but I still had to be you know a little careful that it was always clear. Like I think I think, and part of this is just that the language is very different, but like. You know, old English is has declensions, right? So you has like, you know, you you can tell the part of speech from how uh, from its case, and so in languages like that, you can push words around a lot more. In English, we de- depend a lot on position in the sentence, and so you just can't play quite as much. Uh, and so, you know, I, I didn't. You know, of course, you can do crazy syntax in English, and it will still be sensible, but not to a kid. It's already a lot to ask of an adult. Uh, so I had to be a little careful. Uh, well, Zach, we, we've talked a little, quite a bit about the craft and the story. Is there anything about B, the character, that stood out to you as you were trying to capture, uh, you know, a, a story or, or create a story that's going to resonate with kids? Mm-hmm. Uh, this It's named B Wolf. She doesn't enter till uh, what is it, about halfway through? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Isn't that interesting? It's, so that's true in Beowulf, of course, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not halfway through, but yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like one of the weird things. Although it's funny. It's, you can read scholarly essays that are like, it's weird that we talk about this whole setting before Beowulf shows up, but it, like as a reader, it's not. Uh, like it's just setting up this scene that gets destroyed, and then someone has to fix it. But yeah, it is, you would never do that in a movie. You know, Clint Eastwood can't show up halfway through, right, uh, to, to save the the village or whatever. But like, but 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 like, I, I think I, I don't know. It's just, I think there are certain rules we have about narrative that are just not real rules. Uh, that, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just been decided that in Act One you have to introduce everyone. Um, but you don't have blame, to. Uh, we can blame Joseph Campbell in some way. Yeah. He wasn't trying to do this. Uh, he, I, he was trying to describe stories he saw, but it's yes. become the the framework that every other storyteller since then says, well, I must follow this. Right, model. there has to be a call to action and the hero <laughs> has to refuse. And yeah, yeah. Uh, No, totally. I, I, I've, Joseph Campbell is a deep guilty pleasure of mine, but I do not take him seriously. Uh, I, th- I, I think of him as like a very wise guru type who got a lot of stuff mm-hmm. wrong. It's more like like it's like reading Carl Jung or something. You're like, oh, this is all wrong, but it's it's very interesting <laughs> wrong. Um, um, <clears throat> and it can be inspiring wrong. Like like all of a sudden, absolutely. Like, oh, actually, you know, I can do something with that. Totally. Yeah. I I, just, it's, I think of, I think Joseph Campbell is like if you happen to have an uncle who'd read a high percentage of all fairy tales and had thoughts on them. That's what it's like, you know. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, it feels like uh, you you know when you like read philosophers from like the 1700s and it's like the premise seems to be i was alone for an afternoon and i thought of this <laughs> eternal law <laughs> no, <that's right>. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know universe here we go yeah it's totally true i feel like this is this is too far afield but like there's this weird thing now where like nobody wants grand narrative which i think is like a mixed blessing uh because it's like we're, we're also in the data now about everything you you know it's like you almost can't say anything about history anymore which is probably good because like probably you never should have but uh <laughs> but i don't know it's it, it is an interesting change i feel like like joseph campbell is living the last era where you could be like i've figured out the key to all stories everywhere mm-hmm. you know but, you, wait, um, again, I'm not trying to not like I talk about it in my classes. It's a fascinating <laughs> thing. And you you 
particularly for stories that are coming post Star Wars, where George Lucas gave a lot of credit. <laughs> Yes. Or the the monolith. This is really important for understanding the stories that we consume now. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so I mean, so, 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 so that's you know, so, so your question was about about making the character Beowulf. So like, actually, it's, it's weird. So I've 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 worked on other stuff where I care more about character. Beowulf is an emblem, mm-hmm. right? So it's like it's just different. Like like you know, like when you read Beowulf, like you have thoughts about Beowulf, but he's he's not a person. <clears throat> you know, like everything he he does is big. Um, he, he, you know, he's 60 times as strong as any human being. Um, like, like possibly in the original story, he was like raised by bears or something. We don't know. Um, and, and so like, I, I don't feel about the character like I would if I like created a character doing like, like littler stories, like, or having like family issues or something. Like I'm, I'm in, like, I like reading like Turgenev where you hear every little detail about the conversation by the barn or whatever. But like, but, but for an epic, you, I, I feel like that would be, that would be almost absurd uh, it would it would seem like comical to like introduce those moments and and so I like now and then we do do that in the story but it is comical it's supposed to be like an aside about you know yeah, you know, um, yeah. I, I was gonna say I, to me reading this like all of these characters they're almost more like icons representing yeah. things yeah yeah they're than, like puppets yeah yeah uh, yes and, and I think that works both because of the tradition that's drawing on with Beowulf where yeah. as you said these aren't like nuanced fully fleshed out like you know full of contradiction type characters necessarily uh but also because this is um you know a a somewhat simplified story for for a younger Mm -hmm. audience it works to have them just exist as icons yeah i i think there's you know i think what it comes down to is is this is meant to be read as epic which which it's an open question whether you would call beowulf epic but i have have trouble imagining it not being epic but 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 you know that's a thing you can fight about but like but like th- this is this is clearly meant to be like epic. As, as, as far as I know, someone must have done this before. But the idea of sort of taking kid virtues and and casting them in an epic hero was the idea. I mean, became the idea. It was not the original idea, but it sort of creeped up. And so what, what, once you're in that position, like you know, a culture hero can't be flawed. Not in that way. Mm-hmm. They might they might have like a kind of flaw of like he was he was so strong he hurt people or something you know but like it, it can't be like flawed like he you know I, I don't know wakes up late or like you know has anxiety <laughs> issues you, you just can't it just you, you it's like immediately comical to like it's take uh, right yeah you just like so Achilles has a flaw which is he, he has his, he has his anger but like even like it's awesome anger right <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's superhuman right he's like right. when he gets angry yeah yeah like like and, and even his anger is like beyond human anger like like mm-hmm. like be like 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 right right like he violates burial rights because he's so inhumanly angry and so like once you decide like if beowulf is going to be an epic character she can't do she, she can't have that kind of nuance about her that would, mm-hmm. they would they would ruin it so so i i i know i i, I like I like normally for kids books I, I should talk about like how i was like very much passionate about the character's emotions and I'm just not, that's yeah. not, that's not, that's not what's going on here. Well, I think so much of what makes Be Wolf work so well is this blending of that comic art and your mm-hmm. prose and the, and the, the word sounds and all the rhythm that we've kind of talked about. And for that, it's not like stopping on the interiority of a character. Right. <laughs> you know, hey, well, that, totally. And again, it would be weird. Right. I mean, so mm-hmm. like, the way you get it, the closest you get to Beowulf's interiority is him like shouting a speech about how great he is, you know. Like, I mean, that's, that's I think slightly unfair. I mean, there there are there are parts when he gets back to Hygelac where they kind of chit chat a little, but even then, it's like it's like court stuff, 
You know, it's like this this one princess is marrying this one guy, and and there was this fight and this kind of stuff. It's not it's not interiority. Yeah, I mean, like like I said, it would be immediately goofy. Yeah, uh, and I, I just want to say as we're going to be wrapping up, uh, strong recommendation to our listeners that you go pick up uh, this book, The Wolf. Uh, it, and Zach, thank you so much uh, for coming on and talking us through some of your thoughts uh, and your process on this. Uh, it's been a delight to have you here. Yeah, it's been lovely. You know, I have an English major. I never get to talk about it, so it's it's nice to. Uh, oh <laughs> to well, <laughs> anytime you want to, you're you're welcome to just come shoot the breeze on on pseudo academic discussions here. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you are a first time guest, and we always ask our first time guests a question to celebrate right. great characters, which is if you could hang out for a dinner party with you know a handful of fictional characters. Who would you want to see for an evening just to enjoy the conversation? Yeah. So let me tell you why uh, I have a weird list. Um, and the reason it's weird is because I would say it's not my favorite characters because I don't think I'd want to hang out with any of my favorite characters. I like I thought really hard about this. And like I tend to like like kind of like weirder, like taciturn characters. And it would just make for a really bad dinner party. Like I was, I was like, I was trying to think of like something like relatable. I was like, I love like Homer Wells from the Slaughterhouse Five, but he'd probably just sit and be quiet. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I was like, that's not a good pick. Uh, listeners, a quick note: Zach emailed me shortly after we finished recording with a minor correction. He said Slaughterhouse Five and meant to say Cider House Rules. The meter is the same, but the themes are very different. So when he says slaughterhouse five mentally correct that to cider house rules thank you okay uh, i've asked a lot of people this question and you're the first to bring in slaughterhouse five as a potential i love that character it's like like it's one of those you know you ever read a character you're like this feels like i'm reading about myself like this like um that was, that was one of those for me or like i love like i don't know if you ever read like um Gosh, uh, the Strugatsky brothers, like a Soviet science fiction. There's this great book called Roadside Picnic. Has some of my favorite characters, but like, like they're like damaged, angry Russian people. I would like be scared of them, so they're not invited. Um, so I, I thought, <laughs> so I came up with a list, and I was leaning on kids' books since it's a kids' book. Uh, but also, I was like, I want people who will just chat at me that I can listen to, so I don't have to be very talkative. They can do um, lifting conversation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first one I picked, Anne of Green Gables. Uh, yeah, because you know, I always remember there's that scene at the beginning. I love these books, by the way. This is like, like I, have a, I have a deep soft spot for like the the vast genre of 19th century orphan girl makes the town work uh, literature. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm confessing too much here, but like, um, there's this great scene at the beginning where they. Uh, Everyone's read this book, right? This is not, I don't need to. Oh, uh, at the very least, our listeners could have listened to an episode where we talked about it. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, there's this part right at the beginning when, uh, you know, the, 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 there's this wonderful setup where the, you, you, this, is, this is also like a ladies' novel from that period. So, like, all the men are like quiet or dead or like done away with. And, um, and so the quiet man who's the husband of, of, of the older woman in the story goes to pick up this orphan girl, because I guess you could just do that back then. But he thinks he's getting a boy, but he gets this girl, and that's the setup for the story. But anyway, the joke of it is she just talks to him nonstop for, like, the, like, many hours carriage ride home. And he's this, like, kind of quiet guy who doesn't talk much, and he just sort of finds himself adoring it. And it's this wonderful setup. Uh, and so I would, I, I would like to be on the receiving end of that. Uh, n- not older than, <laughs> but like book six, she's, an, she's annoying. And, uh, but like, but like take her at 11 or 12 years old. Just, I would take that. 
Um, so I just went to double check real quick. It is a 115 year old novel. So I think the spoiler warnings are off. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. fair game at this point. And it's been, it's been adapted 4,000 times. And uh, yeah. Um, okay. So my next one, and I, I don't know if I think about this, but I picked Merlin from the T.H. White um, wonderful Arthur Pentology. Uh, uh, I forget what he called the whole set, Candle in the Wind or something like that. Um I just think of what's once in future king, right? But the whole set, let's say. Yeah. Or is, I guess the first, you know, you're right. It's the once in future king. I think one of them is called the candle. And there's, there's five of them. There's a fifth one. That's like a little bit obscure. It wasn't published during his lifetime because of, my understanding is paper shortages. It's also a weird book. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I love that character. And he's just like, he could explain things. He's also from the future. So he could tell you stuff. I think he's from the future, which is like the 1940s. So I, you know, I don't know what he knows. Now I don't know this time travel stuff gets weird, but uh, but yeah, I, I, that 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 series is maybe my favorite kids series ever, ever, ever. Though I have no idea how kids liked it at the time because it's like practically unreadable for children. Um, but I, I think it was like kind of a desert of kids literature. There wasn't that much back in like what was it like 1930s? Yes, yeah, so Sword in the Stone is 1938. Yeah, uh, and I've got it pulled up because I was double checking. The Queen of Air and Darkness is 39. The Ill Made Night is 1940, and then Candle uh. in the Wind is 1958. Oh, it's so good. The ill-made night, I remember, is like this. That's when, when I say like a kid, there's this whole plot line around like how Arthur knows in his heart that Lancelot is 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 uh, cheating with Guinevere and Arthur. There's this one scene I always remember where Arthur comes to him and, and basically very subtly says, please don't ever let me find out, which is like such a wonderful moment. But what is it doing in a kid's book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's some adult level angst. <laughs> It is. It totally is. Like, because they love each other. The two men do. And so he's like, you know, and and, and Arthur is this kind of weird sort of like wise, kind not sexless, but not the opposite of that. Right. And so like, you know, it's just this fascinating moment of him being like, because I'm the king, I can't be, I can't know because if I know I have to take action. So do not let me know. It's just so amazing as like literature. I just don't know why it's there, but I, I love, I love those books. Like, like utterly. Um, and then the last one, I didn't know what to pick. Those were two that felt pretty good. And then I thought one of my favorite uh, books um, is uh, Elizabeth Gaskell's Cranford, which I think it was a TV show. So maybe people yeah, read it. I think of it. As, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think of it as obscure, but apparently there's a TV show. So I guess everybody knows about it, um, which is a wonderful book. Um, mm-hmm. Like every single Elizabeth Gaskell book is like an instant classic or should have been. And um Cranford is a book about, if people don't know, it is a book. It's just kind of like, I think of it as like the like Rolls Royce of like sentimental ladies novels. And it's kind of a weird thing to say, but I like love these. Like this is a genre of sort of 19th century model books that are kind of just about social life. And that's like it. And, mm-hmm. and they kind of have ups and downs. They do that Dickens thing where it's like one is really sad. And then the next scene is really happy. And then the next scene is sad again. And you're just like, by the end, you're a mess. And um, and Cranford is though I think of it, it's, it's like such a joyous uh, book of hers. Her books are often very heady and heavy. Like she, her famous book is called North and South. It's like the sprawling and endless and books. I think is the other big one. Is it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's there's sort of like she's capable of comedy, but they're much more serious and like just often just like absolutely tear jerking and very dramatic. And Cranford is just kind of like about women in this small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like a joke at the beginning about how like men don't exist in this town. Like they're just sort of peripheral to the serious business of like what the women are doing. And there's just these absolutely hilarious stories, despite being from like 1840 or whatever. And, um, 
and they're wonderful. And also, again, the characters are very talkative, so I could just sit and be quiet. So I picked the narrator character, Mary Smith, kind of arbitrarily, but they're all delightful, um, a, a wonderful set of stories. I have like a, 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 like just deep passion for Elizabeth Gaskell. I don't know why we all like Dickens so much when we could have Gaskell. Um, uh, it's it's like 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 Dickens is like slapstick compared to her. Uh, but um, so that's that's my like long winded third pick. Oh, fantastic! I love the things <laughs> we get, and this one was a lot of fun. Uh, Cranford is one of my wife's favorite novels, and I I haven't read the novel yet. I need to. It's in my there's, there's you, so gotta, much you know it's in re- my re- read the corpus. Uh, the, all, every everything by Elizabeth. There's not that much. Uh, you know, there's maybe like seven and a half novels or something. Yeah, I, I think they're all on our shelves because my wife very much <laughs> good Elizabeth good Gaskell. good and taste. I, I've seen I've seen the adaptations, but I've not read the books yet. So I, I'll, oh, I'll need to get oh, on. They're that. so good. Why do people read Jane Austen? I, I don't get it. You need like a diagram. And then nothing happens. I don't get it, but like uh, uh, right, Elizabeth we're not going to stand for any Jane Austen. <laughs> I will just. I'm going to put my foot down on that. <laughs> no, I Jane Austen is too high IQ for me. I feel like I need like I need like a tensor mechanics to to understand what's going on. Uh, there's like eight thousand characters, and there's a new one on every page, and it's like and, and, uh, and for and then they do the but, letters where they don't actually say the full like this is a letter yes. with a dash dash dash. Like wait, who? who and then and then it's like and then with Sally and Sally's family came from the Balkans in 1643 and you're like why and it's it's just this is what Jane Austen is like I've read her letters and you're like oh it's not fake this is this is this is what she's really <laughs> she like is really snarky in her letters like the the, the yeah I remember you're like uh, Lizzie Bennet is like oh that was a little harsh Lizzie you you cross the line yeah. you read her letters you're like oh that was Jane yes Jane yeah no no I I I, I it, it's so funny yeah it's like that combination of like sassy uh snark with like obsession over like trivia at dinner parties and you're like this was this was just absolutely who she was and uh yeah, she, she yeah. would have been part of the algonquin round table if that's she, yeah 100 <laughs> percent. yeah 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 anyway <laughs> I, 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 I'll say no more about her. But, uh. <laughs> all right. Well, that, that is going to wrap up this episode. Uh, listeners, thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast and your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. And we would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Zach, um, I know you have many projects. Is there any in particular you would like to plug right now? Oh, I think I already plugged my Facebook earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, I think, I, I mean, I'd be happy to plug it again. It's in, uh, available November seventh, uh, November seventh, <laughs> in fine bookstores everywhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's called a city on Mars. It has a name. It's called a city on Mars. That, that is the nature of publishing. Sometimes, it's like you work on something for years, like you, you just dedicate, and then it's just gone in the uh, ether, and you, and then it shows up on your doorstep, and you're like, "Whoa, where'd this come from?" It's so weird. It's so weird, it's, especially research books, because you like by the time you have it in your hand, you're like, "Do I remember any of this?" I yeah, was so I, I smart a year ago. This. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Zach, for joining us, listeners. Thank you for downloading this episode. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Uh, Zach, do you have any questions before we jump into the recording for the episode? I don't think so. I think the, the only thing I'm on the hook for is the the, the people I'd like to uh, have. Uh, uh, so I, I did my. I, I spent way too long on this question, but uh, <laughs> but, but, but I think I got are, it. 
<laughs> I mean, at this point, we've probably had hundreds of guests, and that is a pretty standard response. Uh, is, <laughs> oh, like this kind of devoured my afternoon. Actually, it's like I was swapping people in and out. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>